0: We are back. What's up, everybody, Quadcast Nation? So excited to connect with you again. We got a doozy, super, ultra gangster episode with Rob Wolf. This is the second half of a conversation we had with Rob talking about his book, Sacred Cow, which gets into the question, is eating beef safe? Is it sustainable? What's the nutritional value? What's the impact on our environment and I I guarantee you'll be surprised at what Rob has to say and this is in light of you know you hear me talk about this on the show but about watching Game Changers a lot of my friends colleagues watch this series on Netflix or this documentary and my mind was blown it's all about plant-based nutrition how impactful that can be and so you know meat seems to be getting a, a bad rap and so Hearing Rob's perspective on this was actually quite mind-opening. We also talk about, you know, how to really critically look at some of the data that's been, that people bust out, whether it's in social media and even in the medical and scientific world. We talk about how we want to teach our kids how to really be critical thinkers. I think honestly, that's a way of a future, especially with AI. But yeah, it's a really in-depth conversation with, with Rob. It's full of knowledge. I honestly have a bit of a man crash on him. He's tremendous. Before jumping into the episode, I, I want to make sure you guys know about our low carb keto conference that we had virtual conference that you could find on solvinghealthcare.ca backslash low carb. This was an amazing virtual summit we had with Joy Kitty, nutrition specialist in low carb, Ivor Cummins and Dr. Paul Mason. Knowledge was being dropped all over the place, and uh, use the link uh, solvinghealthcare.ca backslash low carb, and you could purchase that for twenty nine ninety five. And let me tell you, this was a game changer. Okay, all right. So without further ado, we're bringing Rob back again. As I mentioned, author, podcaster, change leader. You know what I'm saying with the uh, the healthy rebellion so proud of him and so proud of what he's all about. So yes, without further ado, crew, Rob Wolf. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm gonna talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Okay, Rob, we're talking about your latest masterpiece, Sacred Cow, the book, the movie, and I got to tell you too, the plant-based approach to, to health has been a novel concept to me. We just had, were recently going to do a show and, you know, after seeing that documentary Game Changers, I've had so many people ask me, are you going more plant-based? Are you going more plant-based? You know, especially when you look, when they presented the environmental side of things. So I haven't yet to jump into that into that book. That's my next one. But maybe tell us a bit about what the, the book and the movie is all about and some of the myths or the science behind some of these claims that you hear about from the plant-based world?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a super complex and controversial topic. And I would make the case that currently there's kind of an asymmetric warfare that's being fought. So folks in the more vegan-centric world, they basically get these little hand grenades and they're like, meat causes cancer and they throw it over the fence. Yeah. Meat causes heart disease. Meat's going to destroy the planet. And it sounds super good. There is peer-reviewed research that seems to support their position. And then for folks like me to give any proper accounting of that, each one of these topics is kind of a mini PhD dissertation to really give it a thorough accounting. So it's really kind of a a difficult process to get into. My co-author and I, Diana Rogers, we worked on the book for four years prior to release, same, same amount of time on the the film. And what we look at is the health, ethical, and environmental considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. And, you know, there are many things that are thrown out, uh, like uh, grazing animals release huge amounts of greenhouse gas, and that, that this is going to accelerate climate change, so we need to reduce the number of grazing animals. When you really look at the data around that, there's a couple of different things that are really concerning there. One is the amount of greenhouse gases attributed to these animals has been shockingly overblown. Some people have said that 86% of greenhouse gas emissions out of westernized countries come from from animals. It's more like 2.8% as a beginning point. The other part of that that's really fascinating is that life produces greenhouse gases, both methane and carbon dioxide. Right now, you and I are greenhouse gas emitters. Because we're alive. And then when we die, we'll be one final push of greenhouse gas emissions and and that's it, you know? But biogenic methane and greenhouse gases have to be treated in a very different way because it's part of a cycle. And where this has become really dangerous in the rush to demonize all greenhouse gas emissions, there was a piece in the journal Physics that was kind of like a it, it was a little bit of a head-scratcher, shellfish produce huge amounts of methane. I mean, absolutely massive amounts of methane. Termites produce massive amounts of methane. And so there's been some suggestion that we should eradicate termites and shellfish to save life. And this is kind of the nutty direction that things have taken. Our greenhouse gas is important. Yes. But it's really more important to understand the context of what we are talking about. Even in this COVID pandemic, it's been interesting where numbers of grazing animals didn't decrease, but what did shockingly decrease is transportation. And there was a massive decrease in in both carbon dioxide emissions and also methane because that that transportation sector is a disproportionately large input to that. And it's also taking ancient carbon that's been underground sometimes hundreds of millions of years and really reintroducing it into the environment at a a very high clip. And an ironic feature to all this is when you look at well-raised, holistically managed grazing animals, specifically like uh, chicken and pork or a different category, and maybe we do a different show to unpack that at, at some point. But there have been these things called life cycle analyses. When you look at all the thermodynamic inputs and outputs of a particular system and grass fed, holistically managed meat pulls more carbon out of the environment than what it releases from all the methane, the carbon dioxide, the water use, the whole nine yards. And this process doesn't stop. The way that it's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere is by rebuilding topsoil. And this process can kind of go on more or less forever. And so while we're demonizing grazing animals for being the carbon emitter that they're really not, and in a context that is quite different than what transportation is, they may also be the most important tool we have to mitigate climate change, to reduce atmospheric carbon dioxide levels, and... Produce a decentralized, effectively infinite food source. Like this is, but before humans were even on the planet, grasslands and grazing animals were a, a keystone feature of the global ecology. So it's important to understand that huge tracts of the Earth's surface are amenable only for growing grass and supporting the animals that feed on that grass. Man, there's just a lot of different moving parts to that, but in this, in this rush, to do something about climate change i think some really good intention has just kind of gone a little bit off the rails where we're not critically assessing are these animals really the danger that we're proposing and could there even be a flip side to this that they may actually be a shocking solution to the the problems that we face and you know there's some interesting kind of access and kind of social justice stories around this stuff. Like when we really started poking around in all this, there are a good number of people around the world that the women are unable to own land, but they can own animals. And it's mainly grazing animals. And that is their sole source of income, of societal status. It provides a remarkably nutritious diet to their families and their communities. And what this planet of the vegan story really is, is trying to get everyone dependent on the row crop exports of the United States and Europe. And this isn't like an opinion piece. The the stated goal of Impossible Foods, the folks that make the Impossible Burger, they said that they want to own the intellectual property on our food system. And I just, you know, for like developing countries and places that have these rich cultural histories of, of their indigenous food systems... This is shocking to me. Like, it's dangerous. It's not a resilient system. If another pandemic hit the U.S. and the whole world is dependent on our food exports, what the hell is going to happen? There was a a piece that was released from a UC Santa Barbara publication recently looking at some Pacific Island chains that have become overly dependent on exports from the United States in particular. And, man, they are hair on fire, uh, resolved to become food independent and to refocus on their traditional food systems. So this is another kind of feature of this thing where there, you know, there's some interesting kind of globalization stories that get into this. And doc, I got to tell you, like, I think that this is to whatever degree, I end up having a epitaph on my headstone. That's like this dude either did good or bad. If the good is from anything that I've done, I think it's going to be it actually in this, this kind of sustainability space. But man, the amount of pushback and anger and, you know, I mean, we get labeled everything from like right wing conspiracy theorists to, you know, just trying to navigate this story and have a nuanced discussion has been an absolute landmine. And I got to say, had I just doubled down on selling abs and skinny jeans, it would have been way better for my body, (laughs) bottom line would have been a, a, a lot better for the gray hairs popping up on my head because yeah. it, it's been a stressful process, but I have two young daughters and I really, I want them to have a better world than, you know, I want to leave them the best world that we possibly can and hopefully a better world than what you and I had. So yeah. that doesn't mean I'm right. I strongly encourage people to get in and, and look at the material that we present there and man be as critical as possible. But in that critical analysis, just be honest, you know, like, is what we cite accurate? Go to the primary citations. What do those things really say? Like, we were, we were really careful in, here's an example. A lot of people believe that pastured meat is more nutritious than grain-finished meat. And that was actually an assumption we made when we were outlining the book. Like, we had one, one bullet point that we needed to research and, and validate. Pastured meat is more nutritious than grain-fed meat. It isn't really. There's hardly any difference between the two. There's a slightly higher amount of omega-3s in pastured meat versus grain-fed meat, but three ounces of salmon has more omega-3s in it than eight pounds of pastured meat. Hmm. So if we're talking about omega-3, omega-6 ratio like that, that's not where you have this discussion. And the regenerative ag people have wanted our heads on a pike but we looked at every bit of material available. We hired a PhD independent researcher to look at this topic and he arrived at exactly the same spot that we did. It would have been wonderful if we could say, yes, it is shockingly more nutritious to eat pastured meat versus grain finished meat. But the reality is that beef, lamb, goat, camel is super nutritious because it's a grazing animal. Like they're just disproportionately good at upcycling nutrients and becoming very nutrient dense food. So that's one of these examples where ironically, we get a fair amount of hate mail from the people that we're kind of trying to advocate for, which are the regenerative ag folks. So there's a really powerful ethical case for for pastured meat. There's a powerful environmental case for pastured meat, pastured Dairy is much more nutritious. Pastured eggs is more nutritious. Wild caught fish is more nutritious. But the meat itself, there's just not that much of a a delta between them. And man, again, not to belabor the point, I would have loved for that story to have gone a different direction, but it just didn't. But we tried to be really careful to not greenwash any of this stuff and to play favorably to the the crowd that we're catering to, even though we've had some fairly negative blowback around things
0: like that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would just want to commend you for taking this on. You know what I mean? Because like, I think, I mean, this is not, I feel like it's almost worse than it used to be in terms of being, going against the grain. If you're if you're going against the popular opinion right now, like, you know, obviously I'm thinking about just people expressing themselves during COVID, but this as well, like I, I commend you for for being brave. And what I always say is, like I got three young boys. I always say, like, if, you know, how would my boys, if they're watching me right now or your daughters, would they want me to act with integrity and, and speak mm-hmm. the truth or just go along with the the rest of the team? And I think, you know, this is if you're passionate about it and there's some myths that need to be dispelled, like, let's do this. Right. The other thing I wanted to, to mention regarding Sacred Cow, which actually blew me away because one of the things that i saw is diana Mm -hmm. rogers right like i I saw diana i heard diana rogers on uh diet doctor and she was explaining the the water like the water component which once again you watch game changers which is clearly a biased point of view but you know they just they did their best to make some compelling arguments but the water argument was where i was like okay whoa you know that much water goes into you know producing cattle and or, uh, meat, but I'm going to screw this up a bit. She was explaining the difference between different colors. It was a green, green, blue, and, and gray. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm wondering if you could touch a bit on that because I think this is a, to me, I like, I stopped almost driving when I heard that and just so I could take a note.
1: Yeah. And this is one of the things that is, is thrown out there is justification that, Oh man, raising meat is really inefficient. It uses all this water So there was a a report out of the Netherlands. There have been other reports, but this thing is pretty new. It's very comprehensive and it categorizes the water usage in different food production methods. And it breaks out water into green water, which is precipitation, rain, snow, mist, hail, you know, whatever. Blue water, which are lakes, streams, and below ground aquifers. And then gray water, which is the wastewater of these different processing methods. And in this paper, it makes the case that it, it does these comparisons and it, it suggests that meat production is disproportionately high in water consumption. But 96% of the water that they're accounting for is rain that falls on grasslands. Hmm. It's going to do nothing else other than fall on grasslands. And these Can't grasslands, the interesting thing is it, it isn't lost. It grows grass- That becomes part of the local hydrological cycle of, you know, like gaseous water vapor going back into the air and coming back down as mist. And and then the animals eat the grass and drink the groundwater and they pee and poo and do all the things that they do. But this isn't stealing water away from another area. And the irony is that things like almonds do exactly that. They pump groundwater to raise almonds And in the United States, 70 or 80% of the almonds that we produce are exported to China. Mm -hmm. So we're literally exporting a finite resource of groundwater in the form of almonds and sending it to China. But yet, because it's a plant-based food, it's really not vilified Mm -hmm. at all. So this is one of those things that it's really critically important to look at the details. And I I don't know if either one of us explained this thing adequately for the the folks listening, but you know, it is routinely stated that raising beef in particular, and again, chicken and pork are a different story. These things are raised exclusively in these kind of confined area feedlots, And this did not exist prior to World War II. It was post-World War II and in the industrialization of the food system that we were able to get these confined area feeding operations, particularly for, for pork and chicken. Pork and chicken used to be these secondary food options that we had like there was the special occasion meal that folks had was chicken every once in a while because you couldn't grow it in massive amounts it was like a secondary feature but if we're demonizing cattle because of water consumption and that water consumption is almost exclusively in the form of rain sleet and snow that falls on grasslands And if these grasslands are not healthy, unless you have properly managed animals on them, you can't overgraze the grasslands, but you can also undergraze the grasslands. Pulling animals off of them is just as bad as having too many. There's kind of a middle ground there. Then we could make some really catastrophic decisions. Like we could double down on like subsidizing food that really is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And again, I can't emphasize enough grass, grasslands, photosynthesis, herbivores, This has existed since probably before the dinosaurs in some form. Like this is a stable, major feature to the the global ecosystem. And it's not to say that there aren't things that we could do to improve it, but, you know, demonizing the water use of, you know, that's put into raising grass is a very misguided endeavor when we look at the, the whole picture.
0: Yeah, but it's just so it's amazing how and I come from a scientific background. I mean, I didn't read the papers when it came when I you know, when they're talking about uh the water usage, but they fooled me. You know what I'm saying? And it's just how funny how, you know, the way you sell it, I mean, you could use science to explain your narrative. Like you could find almost anything, but yeah, it's amazing how much devil's in the details, man. Yeah. Like it's just it's incredible. And maybe one more point about sacred cow or, or just beef in general. I think, you know, there's a lot of worry about, you know, increased cancer risk. You'll see that. I mean, that's common mm-hmm. thought amongst us clinicians, like red meat. And I think I want to say colon cancer, the cholesterol, there's the nutrition element. Like, are you getting enough nutrition by being like heavily meat-based or, you know, like for example, our carnivores getting enough nutrition. So anything that you want to comment on that,
1: yeah you know, so let's tackle that that like uh colon cancer piece as a as a one, and we could definitely dig into some of these others too, but this is a situation where folks really need to get savvy with absolute versus relative risk mm-hmm. and there's even a little bit maybe a a layer that we need to go beyond that. The gold standard in in kind of medical research is the randomized control trial where you get a bunch of people and they're all you know, mixed in a way that hopefully all the genetic variation is is pretty well represented in the two groups and there's lots of people. And then we change a variable, maybe two variables, and we let them run forward. And we're able to do this under animal trials reasonably easily, you know, with like mice, but it still takes two, three years for the mice to live their whole life and see the effects of an intervention. It's incredibly expensive and pretty impractical to assume that we're going to put A million people on a vegan diet, a million people on a paleo diet, follow their whole life and then see what the, you know, the disease process and morbidity, mortality and all that. Mm -hmm. So in lieu of that, what has been developed came out of the epidemiology that discovered the connection between tobacco and different cancers, specifically lung cancer. But when tobacco started getting correlated with the incidence of different cancers, particularly lung cancer the correlation coefficient was 10,000. Like it was massive. Now, when we look at these stories that emerge from nutrition research, they do these things called food frequency questionnaires. So people will fill out the background and then also these, these questionnaires will say, what did you eat yesterday? Or what did you eat last week or last month or last year? Or even some of these that have been used in these, studies that suggest that there's a higher risk of colon cancer with meat consumption, they're asking people to recall what they ate as much as 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And when we've analyzed the the process of people doing that, people lie, people have terrible memories. And it's not even so much that they they lie outright, but they're kind of like, well, I want to say the right thing to this person, you know, right. and so they'll, they'll report, report things that look disproportionately good. But They will get in, get all of this information, and then statisticians start, you know, mixing and rinsing and lathering with it. But as a baseline in westernized cultures, Canada and the United States, we have about a 5% risk for developing colon cancer at some point in our life, just just Mm -hmm. across the board. If you assume that the data in these studies is correct, and that's a big assumption, like they've been really powerfully criticized. Many people say there's more error than signal because people don't lie. (laughs) You know, I mean, they have terrible memories. The, The statistics have been done really poorly, which I'll show an example of that. But after everything is said and done, the assumption out of these studies is that if one ate red meat every day for their whole life, your risk of colon cancer goes from 5% to 6% as absolute risk, which even somebody may be like, well, that, that, that's still too scary. But like you could do a similar analysis saying, well, if you stand on that hill versus this hill, you've got a 6% chance versus 5% chance of getting struck by lightning. Like, it Again, it's probably error, not signal. But then the way that this gets reported is, the relative risk and the difference between five and six is 18%. They rounded up to 20. And so they say there's a 20% increased risk of colon cancer with, with meat consumption. And what's interesting is when you, you look at some other studies that have been done. So there was a, for so long it's been difficult to unpack the intertwined features of these other things going on in the diet and lifestyle. In general, people who eat meat tend to also do other unhealthy things. They smoke disproportionately, they drink, you know, on and on. And some people will claim that through this process called multivariate analysis that you can control for that. That is a lie. It is an attempt at adjusting that, but like, it is not perfect. It is definitely not in the realm of showing causation. There are correlation potentials there, but even these correlation potentials, with meat, it correlates at about 2% in cancer. With smoking in cancer, it's 10,000%. So it's not even on the same planet. Typically, it's thought that you need to get up around like 10, 11, 12 before you really start getting something that's, that's pretty strong on the correlation actually leading into the causation story. So Those are some of the kind of fast and loose things that happen in academia that look really scary. They get lots and lots of of support. But oh, the point I was making, they did do some interesting studies where they looked at folks who purchased meat in health food stores and they tracked them over time. And what they found was that there was no difference in those circumstances between meat eaters and non-eaters, non-meat eaters in the health food purchaser environment. And part of the assumption there was that these people would generally have uh, healthier lifestyles. And one final piece is that we're often told that the Seventh-day Adventists are healthier than the rest of Americans. And in general, that's true. But what's interesting is Seventh-day Adventists are no healthier than Mormons. Seventh-day Adventists are largely vegetarian, some of them vegan. Mormons are a mixed diet population, but they live just as long, just as well, have the the same low incidence of all morbidity and mortality as the Seventh-day Adventists do. And the advantages that they have is that they have a generally healthy lifestyle. The religious faith actually promotes for a healthy lifestyle. And they have the actual religious faith itself, which is all the community and all the other things that help to mitigate stress and lead to these other beneficial features. So man, there's, there's a lot there. But even these two simple little things, it's like, well, meat increases your risk of cancer by 20%. Again, it's the hand grenade thrown over the fence, you know, and you either just take it or, like, probably half of your listeners have committed suicide listening to me, like, try to flail around unpacking this stuff, you know. And I don't know that I did a particularly good job on it. And that is just like, one tiny slice of this story and there's kind of this bigger picture reality which is when we look at how terribly most people eat in the west whether people went paleo or vegan or what have you it's going to be a win like eating less processed food not drinking soda like that's going to be a win and we're we're so wrapped around the axle of trying to find what is the one true diet religion to sell to people that we end up losing that, that bigger bigger picture story that would be really valuable. And again, like if somebody embarks on a vegan diet and they feel way better, they're looking better and everything, and then somewhere down the road, it's not working so well for them, they can shift gears and do something else. And the same thing with a low carb paleo, like they, they could shift gears towards more plant-based, but for the love of God, stay out of the middle of the supermarket. Don't yeah. drink soda, don't drink fruit juice, you know? And those things are gonna have huge benefits for people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No reason why it's got to be complicated, but I do, I I know I've said it before, but I just really want to emphasize that personalized approach where you find what works for you with the the principles of, yeah, being less processed foods, whole foods. Like that's a big win. The other thing I was going to say, Rob, and this is going to sound like out of left field, but one of my dreams, I know you're homeschooling your kids, but because we're going into an era now of, you know, AI, machine learning, a lot of jobs are going to become obsolete. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I'm dreaming for my kids is they learn how to critically think, critically appraise. Like if I'm a, a part of a educational system, this would be the number one priority. How do you tease through bullshit? Yeah. You yeah. saw that Cambridge analytical stuff. Like you're going to be feeding shit all the time. That's not going to be accurate. That's going to be biased. How do you sift through it? How do you find the true answers? But I know that's out of left field there, but I just... It's, it's not, you know, in, we made a point about that in the book that
1: things that are very algorithmically driven, ironically, doctoring and lawyering are probably two of the professions that are going to get the pinch of AI first, yeah. you know, ironically. But this, this regenerative ag story is really interesting. The direction that we're going right now is more and more consolidation of our food production. There's like nine companies that produce 95% of the food that's eaten on the planet. And I think that's a terrible idea. And there will be a ton of people that need meaningful work. You know, like that's just this kind of de- defining human feature. And what's interesting is these small scale, decentralized, regenerative farms. All that these farmers and ranchers do is critically think and problem solve all day long. Wow. AI will never replace that. It will help elements of it. Oh, your grass is good to go over here because of the satellite imaging and oh, we need to do some walk. It will be informed by it. But the understanding within AI circles is we are unlikely to ever create human type creativity with AI. If we do, it's going to be miles down the road. And it's going to interestingly be things that are both very cognitively demanding, but requires physical input of human labor to make it happen. And the the ironic feature is that moving further away from this globalized food system and decentralizing things and having people feed their own goddamn communities, the people that they, hey, neighbor the harvest is coming in, you know, and they're like, great, otherwise I'm going to starve, you know, like there's that interdependency there. But there's also this remarkable opportunity to have people insulated over generational, you know, timescales from the encroachment of AI into the human workspace, because it's stable, it's necessary, we're always going to need food, we always need to to steward our environment. And we're always going to need, you know, meaningful work for people to do. And I'm really you know, outside of medicine, like producing food for people just seems like one of these like noblest of endeavors, you know, like that's mm-hmm. really like man, that that hits deep on you, you know. So I am really stoked that you brought that up because that's another Big case that that we make in the book, and I don't know that it really made it in the film, but I try to weave it into the, the podcast that I get onto is when we're thinking about motoring into the future and what will our children do for work. Like part of the skill set that I don't know if they're gonna like it or wanna do it, but we're helping them to learn how to do some basic woodwork and carpentry and like what is a, a solar cell work into a water pump. And then actually doing small-scale regenerative farming, we've got 1 acre of land here in Texas and wow. we're doing everything we can to for both me and the girls to learn how to do that stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, life lessons, man. I personally wish we were more in tune with that and I know we our household is a bit nuts with obviously the boys and then our schedules, but I commend you once again like getting down to the roots and teaching the kids valuable skills that like, basically, you're thinking about what's going to be valuable down the road. And I got to commend you for that, Rob. Thank you. Absolutely. Guys, li- crew, how balling was that episode? Rob, I got to thank you so much for this. Those that see it on video, my mouth was open half the time with, with Rob's throwing down knowledge. And like, honestly, like, if you haven't listened or read his books or listen to the books or listen to the podcast, like, he's really coming with all this advice. It's evidence based. He knows what he's talking about. It's he's well read. He'll he'll cite find a citation for these claims. So, really, for lack of a better word, the man is vetted. So, Rob, where can people find you? RobWolf.com is where the bulk of things happen. The only
1: social media that I do any dabbling on at this point is Instagram, and that is at dos Rob Wolf. Otherwise, I'm over at the Healthy Rebellion.
0: Thank you for that. I will do one more plug. I was just commenting on the, the topless pose before on that other <laughs> on Insta man. The, the man is ripped. Okay. He's not only, uh, it's all just,
1: liposuction. It's liposuction <laughs> and drugs.
0: That's all <laughs> he's it is. Living, he's <laughs> living it, but guys, so thank you so much for doing this. And, uh, I know we're going to connect again in the future. Doc,
1: thank you. Huge honor to hang out with you. Absolutely.
0: Tell me that wasn't awesome. Tell me that wasn't full of knowledge. Tell me that wasn't all about changing the boogie. Ken Berry, I love that episode, guys. That was fun. If you have any comments or questions, leave them at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at quadcast. If you missed our online summit, low-carbon ketogenic approaches to health, you can still purchase that. Use the links in the show notes. That was awesome. Ivor Joy, Dr. Paul Mason, full of game, y'all. And guys, y'all stay healthy. Thanks for listening. If you don't mind, leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. It all helps. It helps with the visibility of the show because we're going to continue to change the boogie, y'all. That's what we're trying to do. So thank you so much for listening and stay safe.